You're listening to Hey, you're listening to Books and Boba, a book club and podcast featuring books by Asian and Asian American authors. My name is Marvin Yue. And I'm Rira Yu. And we are here for another great author interview. Um, this week we have Abigail Hing Wen, the author of Love Boat Reunion, returning to the podcast. Um, she was on um, a few years ago to talk about the launch of her previous book, Love Boat Taipei. Um, Love Boat Reunion is the sequel, and we're so excited to have her back because, man, she has had a really good run between then and now. Yeah, um, Abigail is our second boomerang in uh, our show. And yeah, like just looking at the trajectory of her like debuting to getting the film adaptation to writing her second book, like it's it's a lot. Yeah. (laughs) We catch up on just like how she's been, um, what it was like writing her dreaded second book syndrome um, novel. And yeah, like I'm. (laughs) I was really excited to talk to her. Yeah, when we interviewed her for her first book, it was like a week before the launch of her of Lopo Taipei. And you know, it debuted on the New York Times bestseller list and we take full credit for that. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding, just kidding. We we take partial credit. Uh, but I was really excited to read her second book. Love Boat Reading takes place a few months actually after Love Boat Taipei. And then follows two of the secondary characters from the first book, Xavier and Sophie, who, interesting enough, were the closest thing the book had to antagonists in the first book. Antagonists, yeah. So it was really cool to see, like, their redemption arc slash second chance romance um, taking place over a weekend in Taipei this time. Yeah, so we talked to Abigail all about, you know, how she came up with her her ideas for the book, as well as, you know, catch up with the very little she can give away about her upcoming film version of Lepo Taipei. So um, without further ado, here is our author chat with Abigail Heen Wen. And hey, we're here with uh, author... Uh, Abigail Hingwen returning to Books and Boba uh, to talk about her second book, Love Boat Reunion. Uh, welcome back to the show, Abigail. Thank you so much for having me. I was just telling Marvin behind the scenes um, when I first met you is before the book hit the New York Times list. And you guys talked to me about how much work has gone on behind the scenes in the Asian American community for years and years. And I definitely felt like I was the recipient of that work um, and getting the word out for this book. So I'm grateful for both of you and all the work that you've done. Oh, thank you. I mean, I'm so happy that you're back, um, especially because I was there for your book launch. And it's just, I don't know, it's so celebratory just to see how far you've come and just how, like, you you have a film adaptation. That's so wild. So I'm really excited to talk to you more about that as well. Yeah. How has it been since we talked to you? I totally forgot that we talked to you before your book came out. For some reason... Love Boat Taipei has just always been out for me now. <laughs> it's just like a part of the literary canon for Asian American literature. Um, uh, how has that, that ride been? You know, there's been a ton of developments um, since then. We can talk more about your film deal later on. But like, how how have you been? Yeah, so it's it's been incredible. Um, so, as you know, the book hit the New York Times list. Uh, it was there for multiple weeks. And 
I ended up going on this tour um, and it felt like an endless tour. I went all over the country, New York, DC, um, Philadelphia. I went to book events and then COVID hit. And so <laughs> all my big events were canceled. They lost seven major events, including this big book fest in Santa Monica. And so that was hard. I think like most, most authors, we all struggled like at that point, like how do you get word out on your book? At that point, I think pandemic favored the books that are already established and incumbent and the books that the booksellers knew. So I think it's been, you know, on the book side, harder to get word out, but we definitely had to rely more on things like podcasts and um, um, online word of mouth and virtual events. But at the same time, the book was optioned for film. And so that was kind of underway and I was writing book two. So I ended up going to Taiwan in October of 2020. I got a special visa took all the precautions, went and did quarantine for two weeks, and then I was able to research Love Boat Reunion. And that came out just a couple months ago in January of this year. I got to say, looking at your Instagram while you were in Taiwan for filming, as well as reading the second book, gave me a ton of FOMO. Because of COVID, I, you know, <laughs> I usually visit my parents in Taiwan like once a year for the last like decade. And so the last few years, I have not been able to go because... Uh, because of COVID regulations, you know, to even go to Taiwan, you have to quarantine for two weeks in the hotel and then another two weeks. I think they've loosened it by now, but still like at least three weeks of quarantine before you can even step foot out into the streets. And so for a normal working adult, that means it's impossible to make a trip back unless you just want to spend the whole time inside. That's right. Yeah. For me, unfortunately, quarantine ends up being writing time. So <laughs> I enjoyed it in a strange way. It's like the world is shut out. You have no... You have a, you know, all the excuses in the world for not accepting invitations because you're stuck in quarantine. Um, so I didn't end up getting a lot of writing done with both of them. Um, and how was it writing your second book? Because um, for a lot of writers, the second book is like the dreaded, um, <laughs> like the dreaded task because uh, you have all the time in the world to write your first book, but then there's usually a deadline for the second book. Yeah, so I definitely struggled. I think the hardest oh, part is that book two is already set in some ways. Like book one, you've established all these things that can no longer be changed because they're published in a book. And, um, you know, with book two, I knew that I wanted to follow Xavier's story. Um, I think for those who've heard the history, like I wrote book one 26 times, 26 versions from all four points of view of Zo Sophie, Xavier, Rick and Ever, and ended up scrapping all that rewriting it all from Ever Wong's point of view. And I ended up having all this leftover story. So I wanted to follow Xavier into his family situation. I knew like, you know, his father and his relationship is a lot more fractious than even Ever and, and uh, her family. And yet he comes from a very interesting family. It's a wealthy Taiwanese family. It's been around for hundreds of years. Uh, and then I, I also felt like Sophie had a really interesting journey too. I found like a lot of my readers connected to her in some ways they, they were surprised how much they connected to her because she is you know the antagonist she's the boy crazy roommate who is just out to get married at all costs and she does some terrible things to ever along the way but in the end she realizes you know she is she has her own brains and she can go and do the things that she's expecting to marry well for instead so in book two she's doubled down at Dartmouth to be the best computer science student she can be but she keeps getting in her own way so it did take me a while to figure out how do we have the two stories together? What exactly was the journey? I even had ideas about like setting it in parts of the Philippines or parts of Indonesia. And then eventually it all had to get pulled back in. And, and it, you know, it became, it became again a trip to Taiwan. I did love how 
you know, the trip to Taiwan doesn't even come into play until probably like a third into the book. And the entire time I was wondering, how are they going to bring this back to Taiwan? Is this going to be like a one year later type of thing? And it turns out to be a one crazy weekend type of story, um, which uh, actually surprised me. But it also makes a lot of sense because, you know, when you're young, these types of things they just come together. Yeah. Yeah, that was fun, too, because, you know, I think about like what is what is different about this particular story? When was it going to be set? Initially, when I was thinking about it, I was thinking of setting it um, in May because there was an, a certain event that I was thinking about centering around, which I, I won't spoil because I may, that may end up in another book eventually. Um, but, you know, it ended up happening around the Moon Festival. And I realized that actually would be a good marker for them to all come together. And I liked that they weren't too much older than the events of the first book. Because Sophie and Xavier, really, they're still, there's still a lot more for them to work through. Um, and, and that intensity of having it all happen within a weekend, I think, was part of what, what made it fun to, to write. Yeah. And so your second book centers on Xavier and Sophie. It's a dual narrative. Um, and I guess you mentioned a little bit about why you chose these two characters. But I did find it really f- interesting and, and fun that the second book is kind of like the redemption story for the two antagonist slash hot mess characters of the first book. Yeah, um, it's a second chance romance for sure. That's right. So how was it uh, developing that? I mean, the trick with second chance romance is there's a reason why it didn't work out the first time. So yeah. <laughs> that is totally how I feel about second chance romances. I'm actually quite skeptical. I, I usually feel like exactly what you said. There's a reason that they broke up in the first place. But with Sophie and Xavier... Um, a big part of the reason why they didn't work out is neither of them were real with each other. Um, neither of them really knew who they were, but Xavier has this really thick shell that he doesn't let anyone inside and because it's, he's learned to hide his whole life. He had to hide his dyslexia from his own family and he can't read in this high-performing world. And so that's just his MO. Um, and same with Sophie. Like she had this front, this perfect bride kind of front, right? You know, modern perfect bride. And as she learns to just kind of be her, real self and embrace that. And, as, and same with Xavier, as he learns to let people in, to let Sophie in, then they actually are able to come to a deeper um, deeper sense of each other and who they are together. Yeah. And what I love about both of these characters is they see the world in like different ways than they ever did. And the way you wrote each character and how they see, like how Xavier sees the world in vivid colors and in like, um, I guess, art palettes um, is really interesting and also sounds really hard to do like did you have a hard time like kind of putting yourself in the mindset of someone who sees the world in a different way than most other people do yeah yes and no so I think in some ways all of my characters are a bit of me and I also see like the vivid colors in the world so that that aspect and and Sophie actually has it too so there's this moment in the book um, where Xavier looks at Sophie's Instagram for the first time and he's like he sees all these colors like oh I didn't know that she saw the world this way too and that was fun for me to kind of bring them together in that way. Um, but but yeah, on the other hand, Xavier is very different than me as a character. Like he's the bad boy. He was, you know, the the, the love interest. He's, um, you know, he he's a guy, right? So there's just so many ways that he's different from me. And I, it was challenging in the sense of like, how do I put myself fully into his shoes? And for me, the best part, the way I really learned what was, you know, what was going on inside Xavier's head was my trip to Taiwan. And that was wandering on Taipei, looking for where his family lived, where his family was buried, because I knew he would want to go visit his mother's grave, um, and then where his family business would be set. And all of that, for me, just really rounded out who this kid was and the type of environment he was operating in. Yeah, 
I did relate a lot to those. Like, you know, I've been to Di Huajie. I've been to um, the mountains because that's where my grandparents are interred as well. Mm. And so it was a lot of, like I mentioned, a lot of just FOMO of things I would be doing every year if I did go back <laughs> to Taiwan. So I guess thanks for, you know, being my surrogate trip to Taiwan. Um, but I did want to talk about Xavier specifically because he, you know, we learned from the first book that he has um, severe dyslexia and that's affected his educational pursuits and put him at odds with his, you know, very strict CEO father uh, from a deep blue-blooded Taiwanese family. Um, and, you know, because learning disabilities is something that Asian families have a hard time understanding. So there's definitely the conflict of um, how did you prepare to represent like that specific conflict? Yeah, so it's so I'm I'm very passionate about neurodiversity. I have more works that are in are coming about that, you know, that, that difference. And we have it in my own family, which is why I'm sensitized to it. Um, I think with dyslexia in particular, um, it's interesting how with Chinese language, and I write about this in the book, Xavier's father points it out, like Chinese language actually may be easier for dyslexics because it's pictorial. Um, on the other hand, as it turns out, Xavier actually still struggles with Chinese language because he is, it's, you know, I'm spoiling a little bit, but he's dysgraphia as well as dyslexia and dysgraphia actually makes it harder. And I think the reason for that exploration of the two different things, like very few people have heard of dysgraphia, um, but that's exactly what Xavier's experience is. Like he has this cognitive difference that his family is completely unfamiliar with. They're not equipped at all to help him or to find the help that he needs. Um, but there's a reason why he's struggling with learning Chinese language as well as English. <laughs> like he just can't read because um, it's it's a very severe um, difference in the way his brain works. Um, on the other hand, there are benefits to the way his brain works. And I think the challenge for him is learning how do you lean into the strengths instead of focusing on the negative and shoring up all these negative things that his father wants to focus on. Yeah. Um, and on the other hand, Sophie... Her redemption is kind of getting like she wants to be taken seriously as someone who's interested in pursuing not only tech, but like her own ideas and like changing the world on her own terms and, you know, becoming the person that who doesn't need to marry for money. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, also, I did notice that you focus her pursuits in technology and AI, which is something that you yourself are also in. So how much of Sophie's story does draw from your own experience as like a woman in tech? Yeah, for sure. A lot. And and not just my story, but the story of many other women that I've just spoken to over the years, my own peers from college who we've kind of grown up together and then other women who've, who've shared their stories with me. Um, when I was working in venture capital, we found that women founders were asked a different set of questions than male founders and that a lot of times they were held to a higher standard. So the, you know, an all-male team might be, the, re the reflection behind the scenes might be like, well, you know, they don't know what they're doing, but we, they're smart guys. They're going to figure this out. And we're, we're happy to invest in them. We're going to take a bet on them. But with a female um, group, it would be more like, well, you know, where are your numbers? What are the metrics? Like, tell me more about this. And the, the skepticism was just there from the beginning. And it's really based it's because of implicit bias. Um, and so that's actually what Sophie's facing. Her professor does not, is, does not think of himself as someone who's got any kind of biases. In fact, he's like, I want more women. I want more diversity in my classroom. Um, and yet he's just really skeptical about this project she's brought forward because he's never seen anything like it. And he has so many reasons why it's not going to work and so many valid sounding reasons, including like that's been done before. It's never taken off before. Um, you don't really have enough numbers or data here. Um, but really underlying that is he just doesn't have confidence in her. So for sure, that is definitely a common experience. I think that a lot of women face um, and minorities in every industry, 
and something that was really important for me to share. Um, with Xavier and his father, well, we talked a little bit about it, but they have a very complicated relationship uh, for better of lack of words. Uh, it's very tense um, and there is emotional abuse, which is a a very hard topic to talk about when it comes to Asian American parenting because uh, we've heard like the typical like tiger parent parenting and um, America likes to demonize a lot of Asian style of parenting. So I just want to ask like how difficult was it to develop uh, Xavier and his dad's relationship? How difficult was it to get the balance right between like having uh, paternal love, but also have it not be okay for him to say some of the things that he says to Xavier. Yeah, so it it's very, it is very complicated because his father does love him and does care about him. His father cannot be purely evil. It's not, it's no longer a realistic person or story. Um, but I think a lot of it is just the father's own insecurity. It's like he's a single dad. He thinks that he's screwed up in raising his kid without mom around. Um, maybe it's his fault that Xavier never learned to read properly. Like, what would his wife think if she was still alive? And look what, he's, look what, a, what a mess he's made of his own kid, right? So I think a lot of it's also just kind of self-insecurity, self-hatred. Um, and I think when I take it, when I look at it from that lens, that you can understand, like, why he's so frustrated with his kid. Um, and yet, and he, but he doesn't, he's not equipped. Like, he also has had to be very protective of himself and has a thick wall around him. He doesn't know how to say, I love you. Um, and he's protecting himself from Xavier's barbs. Xavier is quite witty and can say all kinds of things that he knows how to hurt his own dad back. Um, and, you know, so I think that's, that's been in the dynamic. Um, and yet like his father is abusive. His father goes too far. His father is physically abusive too. And um, it was really important that Xavier draw boundaries around that and, and be like, you know what? I do want to work things out with my family but it's not okay. And my dad is never going to touch me again. You know, it's like a really important part of his arc. Yeah. I, I think it's a struggle that a lot of, um, a lot of your readers might relate to. And I'm just curious, has anybody, um, like has any of your readers like got back to you by email saying like, thank you for <laughs> exploring such a difficult topic and giving them kind of an example of how to draw ba- boundaries with their parents I definitely heard a lot with book one, um, people who were struggling with their relationship with their parents. And I would get these questions that I, I, you know, I feel like it's very hard to answer them in a vacuum. Um, Everyone's got a different set of struggles to work through with their families. Um, But that, you know, I think even just being able to give yourself permission to set boundaries is a really important part of it. Um, And then with Xavier, I I do hear from readers who... um, they relate to his struggles of just being different, of having a different type of mind. Um, and I think most people are just happy that they get to find out what happened to him. And most, he was one of the favorites out of book one. And I think a lot of readers are just happy that they, that he gets his own ending and his own story. Was yeah. that a surprise to you that uh, Xavier was a fan favorite? Mm, so when I was, so I did have a two book deal um, when we sold the first book all the publishing houses were offering a second book and they all wanted more of Xavier. So in some ways I already kind of knew, um, but it definitely has been affirming to hear from so many readers how much they, uh, they wanted to hear more. Oh, everyone so. loves the bad boy. And then that's. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I mean, this, it is so much injustice for him because it's like, you can see why he's a bad boy. Like he just has been so misunderstood and hasn't been helped the way he should have been helped. 
Yes. Um, so, you know, the book is Love Boat Reunion, which means we see the return of a lot of people from from the first book, specifically, you know, Ever and Rick, who are, you know, familiarly connected to Sophie, um, are also back. And I love that you kind of have, they're not front and center, but they still have their own kind of side plot going on that um, I was like, oh, no, I thought this was squared away, but there's still conflict here. Um, <laughs> I thought that was really cool. <laughs> Yeah, it's funny. I actually got a, a note from a fan who's like, I just read book one and I see book two is about Sophie and Xavier and I, I bought it and I'm going to read it. But I really like, is there going to be any more story about Rick and Ever? Because like, I'm worried that they're not going to, you know, they can't be together. It's a long distance relationship. I'm like, don't worry, go for it. Read the book. <laughs> we gotcha. <laughs> so yeah, that's exactly what it is. Like Rick's at Yale, Ever is a home in Ohio and it's a long distance relationship. And also they don't know where she's going to end up next year. Yeah. Um. I enjoy your books because they show the depth of like we always talk about how Asian America is not a monolith and also Taiwanese America is not a monolith as well. Like depending on where you grew up, who your parents are, what your relationship between those countries are. You know, your first book is about someone who's never been in Taiwan ever, whereas this book is about people who are very comfortable in Taiwan. They've they've been back and forth, which is, I guess, more of the experience that I can relate to as well. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not from a blue blood Taiwanese family, but (laughs) definitely, um, you know, I... I can head back to Taiwan and be just totally comfortable out in the wild, right? Yeah, you're more like Rick and Rick and uh, Sophie. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I love. You mentioned that you wrote 42 stories for your first book, um, and I did notice that you added a whole other campus worth of characters into this book. <laughs> did you carry over any characters that you were originally writing for in that first book over, or were like characters like Bert and Priscilla like whole new creations for this? Yeah, so Bert and Priscilla were completely new. I originally had book one set both on Ocean Campus and Chenton, but like, you know, I make fun of Ocean Campus a bit. I, and I, I spent time on Ocean. <laughs> it was notorious for being boring and there was nothing to do there. So in book one, when I did set the gang, when I moved the gang there, there really was nothing to write about. <laughs> so, um, so I think the setting was there. I knew that there was going to be another campus of kids, but I didn't really um, explore who they were. Um. Did you have a favorite of this new group? Well, I mean, the two main ones that you spend the most time on are Bert and Priscilla, which we all know are Bert and we all know Priscilla, like mm-hmm. the guy who just ruins everything because he's a dumbass <laughs> and like the the girl that just is always just mad about something. Yeah, they were fun. I mean, those are like more more side than typical side characters like Emma <laughs> and uh, Victor are really my mm-hmm. main my main side characters, <laughs> I guess. if They're, they're almost main characters themselves. Um so Victor is the TA for Sophie and um, Emma is one of her new classmates. And they had their own journeys as well. So Emma was was one of the students who was on, on Ocean. Um, and, I, and, you know, I kind of enjoyed that piece of like bringing another Love Boat alum into Sophie's world at Dartmouth because that's that's been my experience too. Like we all kind of ended up in the same place and I'm constantly running into other alum or, you know, either alum of this program or other other programs that I've been a part of. And it's always fun when you have that connection because then you're like, oh, you know, remember all these and you exchange all the stories. And I mean, that's really how these books came to be in the first place was me at a party um, with another Love Boat alum. And we were just talking about it. Someone's like, someone really needs to write this story. (laughs) So here it is. (laughs) How many Love Boat alum have like reached out to you or like written to you since your first book? Oh, yeah. I don't know. Countless. (laughs) I met a lot on in 20, 2019, right before the book launched, we had a couple of different like Love Boat alumni reunion parties. And so I met people from 1988 all the way through 2013. And they're incredible. There's a website on Wikipedia um, that's written by one of the alum, Ben Shuyu. And it's um, 
Yeah, it kind of lists a bunch of the alum that are now well-known, like Congressman Judy Chu, um, Carrie Lai, who's a venture capitalist, Stacey Lee, who's an author and another good friend of mine. Uh, so it's, yeah, it's a really fun community. Have you been reselled by the... The, the official organizers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm in touch with Valerie So, who did the documentary of the official program. And, you know, she interviewed everyone on the campus. Um, and I, I know that my filming team, I think, they probably reached out at some point, but uh, I have not spoken to them myself. I, I spoke with their predecessors, like the mm. office um, that now runs the program. We met, I think, in 2020 when I went for my book two research. <laughs> I feel like, yeah, I feel like your book's done so much just good marketing for that program. <laughs> yeah, should, I'm like really yeah. curious what they think and if they've read your books. <laughs> and <laughs> I, well, I did, when I met with the predecessors, I did give them a copy. So <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice. All right. Um, we have to talk about the film because, you know, you posted some really great pictures. Um, how was it being in Taiwan, watching your work come to life? Yeah, it's incredible. So, I, you know, to catch everyone up, like we working with Ace Entertainment, they did To All the Boys I've Loved Before, Jenny Han's work. And then we, um, our directors, Arvin Chen, we have Ashley Liao as our star, Ever Wong, Ross Butler is Rick Wu. Chelsea Jong is Sophie Ha and um, Miko Haraga is Xavier Ye. And so just even seeing their faces and, um, you know, getting to talk with them, meet them every day on set, see the whole thing come to life is incredible. They're so talented and we've made this incredible movie. I cannot wait to share it with the world. How much of the film is going to be food shots? Ooh, good question. <laughs> I don't have an answer to that yet. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, we wrapped... In January, and it's still being stitched together. So, you know, you don't know. <laughs> yeah. I, um, I, did, I did enjoy in the second book all the all the mooncake talk. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We had we had a lot, had a lot of fun with the mooncakes. Um, when I was there, because I was doing research around the Mooncake Festival or the Moon Festival, and, you know, it's a tradition for people to give each other boxes of mooncakes as gifts. And so I, I kind of reflect that in the story where Sophie has everyone bring a gift, a, you know, preferably a box of mooncakes to exchange with each other. And that's a fun way for you to try different ones because usually when you buy a box of mooncakes, it's all one kind. Um, but there are so many varieties. And when you exchange them, then you can try everything. <laughs> I remember buying mooncakes more than receiving mooncakes because there's this um, there's a store that I like buying mooncakes for a month. And my mom loves Hello Kitty. And there's this one mm. store on, um, I think it's Dongshao Donglu that sells like Sanrio themed mooncakes. So that's kind of oh, like no my way. go-to place. Yeah. That's so cool. Oh, wow. That's oh, <laughs> so fun. cute. So like with the the cast, did they ask you any questions um, about the characters that they were portraying? <laughs> uh, I am so excited to share many, many more stories out of the film world. Um, you know, we're kind of, we're in a holding period right now where we're just kind of getting everything ready. Um, and that's, but that's a question we should definitely come back to, maybe <laughs> like for a third podcast. Oh, yeah. darn. I, I almost got you there. <laughs> Yeah, we want to, um, you know, we talked about how you had two-book deal. Is there a two-film deal? Um, I don't know if that's... Yeah, another uh, one of those questions yeah. we got to come back to. <laughs> um, so what is, what's next? Will there be further stories in the Love Boat universe? Yeah, so what I can say is I have a short story out in the world. It came out January 4th with Serendipity. It's uh, with Macmillan. It's an anthology called Serendipity. Um, the short story is The Idiom Algorithm. It's about... 15-year-old Tan Lee, so he's a Chinese-American kid in Silicon Valley who's dating a girl from, from Shanghai. 
And when she gets kidnapped, he has to build an algorithm to find her. So it's a very short 6,000 word story. Um, had a lot of fun with that one. And I am working on a number of other novels, film and TV projects. Um, and I'm really excited to share more about those soon wow. too. That sounds like almost like a thriller. Are you leaning into going to different genres too? I am. Yes, I have. Like my very first novel that I wrote 12 years ago was actually a high fantasy. And and then I wrote two contemporaries, um, a dystopian, and then La Boat. Mm. So I am exploring the dystopian. I've got a graphic novel in the works. Um, and then, of course, the film and TV stuff is mostly adult, um, adult, contemporary. Yeah. And then I've got a couple of historicals as well. So I, oh, wow. I've always read widely, and I just think there's so many... I have infinite stories in me. And so I think for me, the exercise is trying to figure out which are the right ones to bring forward now. Yeah. All right, Rira. So <laughs> Love Boat Taipei was Enemies of Lovers. Love Boat Reunion was Second Chances. What do you think Love Boat 3 should be? We should give um, Abigail oh, some, some ideas. Y- yes, yes. I, I would <laughs> love to hear you guys answer this question. <laughs> I mean, like in terms of like like romance tropes there's definitely like the best friends to uh lovers trope there's also like the close proximity of um of like oh man like we don't like each other but we have to like work together that's another trope fake dating obviously that Mm. is another trope that readers absolutely love um, but yeah, like second chance romance, I was just so surprised that that was <laughs> like, I just like cannot believe that you were able to pull that off. But it totally <laughs> works. I, like, like I said, yeah. I'm so skeptical when it comes to that. <laughs> it's so <laughs> difficult to write. No, those are awesome. Thank you. And I, I totally agree. When I went into the book, I knew that that was the uphill battle. And I think it's almost that makes me a better writer because I have to work extra hard at, at making it come together. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to ask since we... Since you talked about like different genres and uh, different types of mediums, like is your process the same when it comes to uh, developing your story ideas and to like um, doing your research? Uh, So I find that now that I've got multiple projects under my belt, I am starting to see a pattern. I wouldn't have been able to answer this question a year ago, but book one took me three years. Book two took me two years. I tend to write very widely. Like I kind of explore the world. I play. um, And that's something that my MFA teacher, A.M. Jenkins, affirmed, like, you should embrace the spaghetti and just let yourself be messy for a while where nothing is consistent with each other because you're just trying it out and seeing if it works. Um, so on my current project, um, I usually, what I do is I open up a Scrivener document and I start just populating it with random snippets of dialogue or scenes or maybe a potential thread. And I think a lot about how is this, how's the theme coming together? So the question mark for me for Love Boat is like book one is about identity. Book two is coming to your own power. And so then, you know, what else do I want to write about? You know, kind of what is a natural progression for characters? Um, And yeah, it's, I think it's now that I have multiple projects also, the other thing is like, because I'm always exploding with all these ideas, um, I sometimes have to just figure out which bucket my ideas belong in because not every idea is going to go into a certain book it might go into the tv show or the graphic novel or something else entirely that i don't know you know what it is yet um are there any themes that you want to work out work on in the near future when it comes to uh say love boat three so i am thinking a lot about themes of equity power um you know 
and diversity, inclusion, and equity. I heard this is really wonderful analogy that a friend told me recently. So I've been thinking a lot about that. Like, what does it mean to be fully at the table? What does it mean to lead the table? Um, and what are the challenges that come around that? And, um, you know, like every year we see more and more Asian American authors. I, I'm just like curious, like how has it been uh, since your debut and joining this community? Uh, have you made new author friends and um, how has the support been? I have loved the community. I, um, I've been critique partners with Stacey Lee and Kelly Lloyd Gilbert, I.W. Gregorio, Sonia Mukherjee, Saba Tahir, like for years and years now. And, you know, David and Nicola Yun were supportive of book one. They, they did a launch event with me and they, they came in to help me out with book two as well. And so I'm looking forward to seeing them in Los Angeles when I visit. And I'm just really grateful for that community because I think there's so much shared experience. And, you know, even meeting my actors um, and the cast, the, the crew, like all of us have had shared experiences of being marginalized and understanding, you know, with that experience comes the wisdom of being able to see other people and I am grateful for that. It just makes for a really warm, inclusive community. And it definitely helps that you have so many different types of Asian American experiences in your book, because um, like Marvin said earlier, it's it's not a monolith. And um, I'm pretty sure like the actors uh, for the film adaptation, there were there were a lot of experiences um, that they could put into their acting as well. So I am very excited to uh, see the final product. Yeah, me too. <laughs> um, I guess in terms of like wrapping it up, um, have you been reading anything? Would you like to recommend to uh, our listeners out there who would want to read something similar to to your books? Ooh, similar. I was going to recommend one thing that's not so similar, but so in terms oh, of similar, okay. just recommend whatever you like, <laughs> whatever you like. So Stacey Lee's Luck of the Titanic came out in May. It's about eight Chinese who were on the Titanic um, that were basically written out of history. So I really um, love, love the story, love that she um, has done the work of writing Asian Americans and Asians back into history. Um, Saba Tahir's All My Rage is coming out uh, March 1st. So by the time this podcast airs, it will be out in the world. And it's about these two outcasts in the desert um, who are struggling to get past the fight in their friendship, um, but also running their own family's motel, trying to get out from their uncle's liquor store and running into the injustice of the law. So it's a really powerful story and I'm excited for the world to see it. Yeah, I definitely have those two books already on my TBR pile which is ever growing. So <laughs> I'll definitely have to um, check, check those out during, especially during the pandemic and I'm not seeing anybody. No so uh, reading is no definitely, <laughs> I know, I know no excuses at all. Well, Abigail, it was so great to talk to you again. So great to catch up. Well, we should definitely catch up once the, the film comes out so we can talk more about that. Um, looking forward to yes, your I next book. To. And you know, just thank you personally for giving me a chance to relive some Taiwanese experiences. Uh, I didn't realize how much I was missing until I was reading your book. And I think that I'm sure it's the same for a lot of um, other people in, in, in our situation. Yeah, well, I hope you make it back to see your family soon. Yeah, hopefully. Hopefully nothing goes wrong between now and who knows. I don't know. <laughs> Knock on wood. Uh, yeah, crossing no, our fingers. No more, no more pandemic. I know, We're done. I know. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us once again on Books and Boba. And yeah, congrats on all everything that's happening and everything that's going to happen for because we're we're so excited uh, to see your see your projects thrive. <laughs> yeah, thank you. And thank you again for being here and so supportive from the beginning. I wouldn't be here without the work of the community. Thank you. 
And that was our chat with Abigail Hing Wen. You can check out her book, um, Love Book Reunion, available at booksellers everywhere now, including the Books and Boba Bookshop um, store. As always, Books and Boba has our own online bookstore. If you purchase your books from there, you not only support uh, the podcast, but you also support your local bookstores as well. Um, so yeah, Rira, please remind us what we're reading for the month of March. So we are reading Blight from Uncommon Stars by Rika Aoki. And it is a queer sci-fi story with cursed violins and alien courtship over fresh-made donuts. Um, I'm really excited to read this book because it's been uh, on a lot of lists. Uh, it was on the Kirkus Best Books of 2021. It was an indie next pick, and it was also a national bestseller. So yeah. uh, really excited to read this. Uh, Marvin was saying that it has both of our... Uh, flavors when it comes to to tropes and and genres yeah i love stories that are set in our backyard the sgv Rira loves anything that has to do with music and violins and narika's also a local talent um definitely a very la um story all around so i'm super excited to um, jump into this um, and yeah, quick reminder, if you do read Love Book Reunion and enjoy it, don't forget to leave um, Abigail a rating review on Goodreads or Amazon, wherever you, you purchase the book. And this goes for any author that we feature or that you read, because the rating systems definitely do help with discoverability and getting these books into wider audiences. And, you know, the we can probably do a whole episode on this, talking to people about ratings and reviews, because... Um, I don't know, it just feels like rating systems are so, um, not that they're implicitly racist, but I feel like authors of color do have a harder time standing out in those ratings, right? And so um, anything we can do to help with that will definitely help the authors that we love as well. Yeah, yeah. It's always a little bit frustrating to go through Goodreads reviews and have like the top reviews be... Uh, white bloggers and they're like well i mean sometimes the reviews are like really in-depth and like really nice but there are other times when uh reviewers say i don't relate to this or they say it's super accurate when it's written by a white author who is writing about marginalized experiences and of course there's a lot of um there's those books go on a spectrum but it's really (laughs) hard to determine whether or not the book accurately or gives like a decent picture of the marginalized experience so yeah definitely leave reviews if you can spare the time yeah yeah it's definitely a complicated system but us giving reviews does support and help authors get their books out there so um yeah just a quick psa um on that also don't forget to leave a rating review for us books and boba uh, for this podcast as well um likewise also helps us um you know get picked up by the algorithms out there and will help other people find us who might not necessarily have seen us without um the boost we get from your ratings and reviews and you know you know we're not asking for a in-depth review you can even you know leave feedback about things you wish we would um, be better at but um, leaving a star review does help us out as well. So um, hopefully if you enjoy the show, you'll, you'll help us out there. Um, and, you know, thanks to everyone who's been sharing and you know, promoting our show. Um, we see you and we appreciate your support. Uh, but yeah, on that note, I guess that'll do it for this episode of Books and Boba. Uh, thank you so much for listening. Thank you again to Abku Hingwen for joining us. And um, yeah, Rira, I'll catch you next time. Bye. Bye, everyone.
Thanks for listening to Books and Boba. This podcast was hosted by Marvin Yue and Ri Ryu and edited and produced by Marvin Yue. Follow the book club on Twitter and Instagram by going to at Books and Boba and engage with us on Goodreads on our Goodreads group. You can also check out past episodes of the podcast by going to booksandboba.com and by subscribing to us on your favorite podcast app. Don't forget, you can support Books and Boba and Asian American authors by purchasing books at our bookshop.org account. Check out the link in our show notes and also at booksandboba.com. Books and Boba is a proud member of the Potluck Podcast Collective, a collective of Asian American hosted podcasts featuring unique voices and stories from the Asian diaspora. Learn more about the collective and check out our fellow Potluck shows by visiting the website podcastpotluck.com. Thanks for listening. Life gets a little crazy sometimes. Sometimes it's confusing, sometimes it's funny, sometimes it's beautiful, and sometimes it can just piss us off. Enter First of All Podcast. It's a safe space for real conversations about the things that we all struggle with, celebrate, contemplate, and work through in our daily lives. I'm your host, Mindy Chang. I'm an actor, filmmaker, and entrepreneur with a colorful background, a full life, and brilliant friends who I love to unpack life with to share with all of you. They are everyday people like you and me, ranging from award-winning artists, cultural icons, powerful CEOs, my hilarious childhood friends, and even my mom. Tune in for honest conversations on mental health, dating, sex, family, career, culture, and everything in between. Listen to First of All wherever you find podcasts, part of the Potluck Podcast Collective.